0: Church family, this is what we're supposed to be about. This is what really matters. And if I'm honest with you, it's so easy for us to get distracted, isn't it? There are so many, not necessarily even bad things, but just temporary things that, that take our time that we forget this is what our focus should be. That our focus in life, our focus as a church should be about seeking transformation in people's lives. But sometimes I'm afraid that we don't really get it. Sometimes I'm afraid that we don't truly understand that we are about the Lord's business, which is seeing people literally move from death to life. Amber, are you in the balcony up there? Maybe. (laughs) I'm not going to call on you, I promise. But when we see stories like that, It's a reminder to me, I hope it's a reminder to you, that if Amber had not been introduced to Jesus Christ, if she had not trusted Jesus as her Savior, she would have spent eternity separated from God. Do we truly understand the weight of the responsibility, the weight of the gospel that we have been given to share with the rest of the world? Because i got to admit to you, even as the pastor There are times that I forget, that I get lost in the details. I get lost in the meetings. I get lost in the numbers. I get lost in all of the things that we're going through that sometimes I forget the reality of what is at stake. Now, no, I don't think it all depends on me. I don't think it all depends on this church. I'm not that arrogant. But here's what I do know. What I do know is that what we do as a church matters. What we focus on, what we prioritize, how we use this facility the Lord has given us, how we say that we as members are gonna be the hands and feet of Jesus, that impacts this world. And it doesn't just impact things that are here of saying, oh, well, more people are gonna come to church. Hey, it's gonna help increase our church budget. It's gonna make people have a better word on the street about First Baptist. No, even more important, it matters for eternity. See, the national trend of the church, especially the local church, losing its influence, losing its impact in society. It used to just be true up north, maybe southwest, but that reality has come home to roost even here in the Bible Belt. It used to be, not only was it accepted, but it was expected that if you were a normal Christian, if you were a normal uh, person that you had a family, that your family would wake up on Sunday morning and you'd go to church. It was expected that even if you didn't go to church, that you were going to abide, that you were going to live your life based upon a a biblical worldview. Well, friends, that's no longer the case anymore. But the church is still God's chosen instrument. Remember that. Out of all the avenues, out of all the ways that God could have chosen to to share his message of truth, his love, the message of salvation, he chose to use the local church. And today it's popular, it's easy to bash the church. It's easy to say, hey, I love Jesus, but the church has got all its issues. Friends, be careful. The church is still the bride of Christ the church is still the instrument that God chooses to use to send out his message of truth and love even today. You know, I used to say that it's my desire to be a part of a a healthy church. But now, the more that I think about it, the word healthy, it can give off the connotation of, of peaceful, content, lack of conflict, don't make any waves. And friends, if you look at our church, I think that our church is a healthy church. And based on some of the history of where every church, but particularly where our church has come from, healthy is not a bad place to be. Friends, let me tell you, God has not called us to simply be a church that doesn't make waves. God hasn't called us to be a church that says, hey, just make sure there's no conflict in your church. No, God has called us to be a part of a church that is a transformational church. A church that says that we believe the power of the gospel can transform lives, and because of that, we're going to take the gospel to individuals because we believe the gospel can take people from death to life. We want to be a part of a church that says we believe God's word so strongly that we believe the power of God can change marriages that are broken, and it can heal broken relationships. We want to be a part of a transformational church that says we believe in the power of the gospel so strongly that we're going to go into our community, we're going to go into our schools, we're going to go into our homeless community, we're going to go wherever the Lord takes us, and we believe the power of the gospel can transform even our community. We want to be a part of a church that we say, God, we desire for you to allow revival to take place here. God, we take our hands off this place. This isn't our church. You've allowed us to steward it for a little bit, but we want you to do what only you can do through this church. So here's my challenge. I've seen that video five times now, and every time it gets to me. Here's my challenge. Church, let's reject the status quo. Let's reject being comfortable with the lack of conflict. Let's reject the, 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 the comfort that we might have with things being comfortable, where we like them, and let's say, God, we're willing to get outside our comfort zone a little bit. We're willing to do whatever it takes, not for this church, but for the sake of the gospel. Let me remind you, every single day, There are dozens of people that you know, that I know, that we read in the obituaries, that die every single day, and apart from them having a a lasting, genuine relationship with Jesus Christ, they will spend an eternity separated from God. Does that burden us? Do our hearts break over that fact? There are hundreds of students right here in our community that haven't been reached with the power of the gospel. I believe that today, more than ever before, it is more difficult to reach a seventh through 12th grader with the gospel of Christ than ever before. But you know what? I don't care how much it costs. I I don't care how much time it takes. I don't care what it means for the sake of tradition. We must do whatever it takes to reach these students with the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the only thing that has the power to save. I told Seth in staff meeting on Tuesday, I said, Seth, God didn't call you here to help us raise good moral kids. Sometimes I think that's what we want. We want moral kids who just just abide by the rules. And let's take pictures of them. Let's put them on our church Instagram page. Then we'll feel good about where we are as a church. That's not why God called Seth here. God called Seth here so that he could take the the light of the gospel and to shine it into dark places so that we could see transformation take place in students' lives that would then translate to the families, that would then translate to their schools, that would then translate to a transformed church right here at First Baptist. And he's called all of us, whether you're paid to be a staff member, whether you're a small group leader, whether you're a deacon, whether you're a lay member, he's called all of us to reject the status quo. To no longer be okay, with this is what a lot of us do, we dip one toe in the waters of our walk with Jesus Christ, but we want to make sure the rest of our body is dry so that the reputation with the world is still okay. So that when people see us, they say, yeah, I think he's a Christian, but he's okay, he's just like you and me. We've got to reject that. We've got to say that the gospel is more important than my reputation. The gospel is more important than me being popular in my work and popular with my friends. Friends, this isn't a game. It's not that we just come here and Sunday mornings at 10.30, it's a performance. Because let me tell you, if we leave here in just a few moments, and at lunch, your, your conversation goes like this, well, church was good today, sang some songs I liked, tolerated some songs I didn't, choir was good, Blake went a little long as usual. Got to talk about the upcoming football season starts next week. If that's your conversation, we missed the point. We missed why we are even here as a church body. No, we come here to this building. By the way, this building isn't the church. This is where the church meets. We, as the people of God, we are the church, and we come together as the body of Christ so that we can lift up the name of Jesus, so that individually and corporately we can say that apart from the grace of God, we are nothing. Apart from the Bible, apart from the the fact that Jesus died for my sins, I have nothing, I am nothing apart from Jesus. We come together to pour out our lives to Him, not to simply sit in the pew and be a spectator. And Lord forbid, let's don't be a critic and to come and say, this is what I liked and this is what I didn't like from the service. Beth Moore, two years ago, on Twitter, she posted something, it was a quote. And I wrote this quote down, and for the last two years, it's been on a Post-it note, and it's next to my, my computer. And so I read this quote every day, and this is what she said in a way that only Beth Moore could get away with saying. What happens in our church services was never meant to be up to our pastors, worship teams, and leaders alone. We members are not spectators. God forbid that we'd sit back, eat a donut hole, and sure hope church is good today. Let's get off our spectating rear ends. I told you only Beth Moore could say this, right? <laughs> and pray. Pray. Let's pray hindrances down for God's word to be effectual in every hearer for salvation and transformation for relationships healed. Church, let's fight against the urge to simply not make waves. Let's pray for God to do a work in our midst. Let's pray for God to do something that we can say, well, we we can't take credit for that because only God could have done that. Let's say that we will completely, individually and corporally, we're selling out for him. Because he is the only thing worth selling out for. Not Alabama, not Auburn, nothing else. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, I think that God wants to do something incredible in and through this church family. I really do. I think he wants to see dozens of Ambers get baptized in that baptistry. I believe he wants to see dozens of lives transformed because of the power of the gospel, because a church took seriously what Jesus said that our command, our calling is to keep him first and foremost in all that we do. But here's the question the question is are we making ourselves available to be used by him? Are we making ourselves available to be used by the Holy Spirit or have we filled up every nook and cranny of our lives with temporary things? There's no space available. There's nothing left inside of our schedule, inside of our mind, inside of our finances, inside of our energy, that we have nothing left to be used that we can't even make ourselves available for the Holy Spirit to do what only he wants to do through us. This morning, we find ourselves in John chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there. In our text this morning, we're going to see that Jesus is faced with a situation in which the religious leaders, they are are testing Jesus. They're trying to trip up Jesus to finally say, hey, we, we finally got him. And in doing so, they bring before Jesus someone who in Jesus' day would have been considered an outcast. But I'll be honest with you. Even today, I think this lady would be considered an outcast. Even today, if this lady were to come in and to sit in one of our pews or sit in the chair in the balcony, chances are there would be lots of whispers about her. Chances are a lot of people will be talking about her instead of to her. This woman that they bring before Jesus was caught in the worst imaginable sin in Jesus' day. For she was caught in the act of adultery. Let's look at the scene beginning in verses 1 through 5 of John chapter 8. It says, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? So here we have Jesus. He's sitting in the temple. It's early in the morning and he's teaching the people. And while he's teaching the crowd, the religious leaders come up to him. Now remember, the religious leaders, they were opposing Jesus. And they use this opportunity, they seize this opportunity to put this woman before Jesus because they are testing him. Their goal is to discredit um, Jesus in the eyes of this crowd. You see, they thought that they had finally come up with the perfect trap for Jesus, There's no way that he can, in the scope of what he has, he can't escape this trap. Here's why. Because if Jesus says this woman who is caught in the act of adultery, if he says that she should be stoned, well, then he's gonna lose his reputation of being a friend of sinners. He's gonna lose his reputation of being filled with mercy and compassion. And in that same vein, if he said that that she must be um, put to death, then he would have become a criminal. Why? Because it was illegal for a Roman citizen, by Roman law, for any Jew, excuse me, to exercise the death penalty. So here's the case: if if he says this, then for death, then we've got him. But then on the other hand, if finally if Jesus says to this woman, "Hey, you're pardoned, you're forgiven," well, then they would have captured him, they would have tripped him up, because then um, the religious leaders would accuse Jesus of, of of overlooking or of breaking the law of Moses and of allowing a sin that dishonored the body. So knowing Jesus' compassion, knowing the miracles that he had performed, that he loved people, the religious leaders, they think in this moment, we got them. We have them right where we want them. So you see, in this perfect trap that they've uh, set up for Jesus, the Pharisees had one single motive, and that motive was obvious. Their motive was that they were using this woman in an attempt to trap Jesus. Because think about it. If what they were really after was justice, why would they not have brought the woman to a judge? Jesus wasn't a judge. Why didn't they take her before a court? They should have taken her to the Sanhedrin, but instead they bring her to Jesus because their motive was, un- was un- un- pure, impure because they are trying to trap Jesus. Now let me pull back the curtain here for just a minute and let's look at three of the characters that are involved in this story. In every story, we know that Jesus here is the main character of the story. But the three other characters that we have, first we have this woman. This woman who had just had her sin exposed publicly she's humiliated. And now in my mind, I'm thinking that she's terrified, thinking that she's about to be stoned. The second set of characters involve the religious leaders. They're rejoicing because now they think they finally caught Jesus in a way that he can't escape. And the third set of characters involves the crowd. We're not told what the crowd is doing at this moment, But I have to believe that they're sitting there in silence, just eagerly anticipating what's Jesus going to say? How's he going to respond to this one? And I want you to watch this, because how Jesus responds is absolutely brilliant. What he's going to do first is he's going to disturb the comfortable. Who's the comfortable? The Pharisees. He's going to disturb them. And then we're going to see at the end, he's going to bring comfort to the disturbed. Who was the disturbed? It was the woman. Look at verses 6 through 9. This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Now, the obvious question here, and if you've been raised in church, it's, what did Jesus write on the ground, right? Don't you wonder that? He bent down twice and put his finger... Some people think, hey, well, maybe he was writing down the sins of those that were with them. That's probably the most popular one, but the truth is we don't know. We can infer, we can guess, but if it's not in Scripture, the good news is we don't need to know what he wrote on the ground in order to understand what John wants us to understand or to apply it to our lives. But I want you to see here instead that Jesus in this moment, he ignores their plan. He doesn't address the law, does he? And he also doesn't um, address this woman's condition where she finds herself. Notice, Jesus never says that a stone shouldn't be thrown, does he? But instead, what does he do? Jesus, he never denies this woman's guilt, but instead he just tells them, hey, go ahead and stone her, but on one condition. You can stone her, as long as you are not guilty of breaking the law either. Pretty brilliant, wasn't it? Do you see how Jesus is disturbing the comfortable? Oh, they thought they had him. And in one single statement, Jesus takes the spotlight and he shines it on their sin. See, in all honesty, the religious leaders... They are the ones who are guilty of adultery. No, not not sexually. But they were guilty of adultery because they loved themselves, they loved their power, they loved their influence more than they loved God himself. And you see in that moment, there actually was one person who met all those requirements who could have thrown a stone. Do you know who it was? It was Jesus. But he doesn't. And in that moment... After Jesus makes this statement, the accuser saw, not that woman, but now they see their own lives before God. And what does it say happened to them? One by one, they did what? They walked away. Sadly, this exposure to their sin, it did not lead to their repentance. It did not lead to the fact that, oh, now I understand that I am separated from God and I'm going to trust in Jesus. And friends, the same thing happens today. Sadly, many who hear and feel the truth of the weight and the verdict of their own sin instead of turning to a Savior who is willing, ready, longing to forgive them, to redeem them, to welcome them into their family, instead they turn away from him and they reject Jesus outright even today. Another thing I want you to think about here There's another obvious question. Where's the man? If this woman was caught in the act of adultery, the man was there too, right? And according to the law of Moses, there had to be two witnesses that saw this act, and then they were to take the man and the woman before the judge, and according to the law, both the man and the woman were to be executed for their sin, But the fact that these religious leaders, they came with this woman and they said, what should we do with her and the man is not there? It's near proof that she was set up. And now, watch how Jesus responds to this woman. Verses 10, the first part of 11. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. Now, alone in Jesus' presence, this woman had nothing. She says nothing. She has no excuse. She has no plea. She has no friend standing next to her. All she had was Jesus. And Jesus gives this guilty, remember, she's guilty. He gives this guilty woman her, his complete and undivided attention. Jesus asked her, woman, who's left here to condemn you? She says, no one. And then, the most freeing words that anyone on the face of this planet can ever hear were spoken to this guilty woman in the last part of verse 11. Jesus says, neither... Do I condemn you? Go, and from now on, sin no more. Tenderly and filled with compassion, Jesus tells this woman go, leave your life of sin behind you. Friends, Jesus didn't overlook her adultery. He didn't make excuses for her sin, but his ultimate will for her was to see her life transformed by the gospel. Again, Jesus didn't excuse her sin, but instead he calls her to repentance. And friends, he's saying the exact same thing to every single one of us today. He looks at us and says, friend, you are guilty, period, can't blame someone else. You can't put the blame on them. You are guilty. Your sin is causing you to be, um, you, your sin needs to be judged by a holy God. But then at the same time, he says the exact same thing that he says to that woman. I do not condemn you. And you say, but how can Jesus say both things in the same breath? How can Jesus say you're guilty, but then in the next breath say, but I don't condemn you? We have to look at, Romans chapter eight, where the Bible tells us, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, it's because of what Jesus did that God has the right to justify the ungodly. What do I mean? What I mean is that it's because of Jesus that that Jesus takes on God's condemnation. He takes his condemnation on your behalf. But the verse that I use more and more regularly on Sunday mornings but it still blows me away is this verse from 2 Corinthians and it says for our sake he made him meaning Jesus to be sin who knew no sin why so that in him meaning Jesus we might become the righteousness of God I'll say it again you're guilty you're guilty but praise God you're not condemned You deserve to be condemned. I deserve to be condemned. I deserve the full weight of the wrath of God. I deserve to be punished by God. But just like that woman did, all of the condemnation, all of the penalty, it was laid on the back of Jesus when he was on the cross, and it has been paid in full. Imagine what it must have been like for this woman who was guilty of adultery, who thought this was the end of my life. I'm about to be stoned in front of all these people to look up at Jesus and Jesus say, I do not condemn you. And today, because we're on this side of the cross, we know the cost that it was for Jesus to make that statement. In essence, Jesus said, woman, I don't condemn you because I will one day six months later be condemned for you. Stones should be thrown at you right now, but instead in a few weeks they'll be thrown at me. A spear should be hurled inside of your side, but instead that spear will go in my side. You should wear a crown of thorns so that everyone can see your shame, they can see your guilt, but instead I will take that crown of thorns and they will be placed in my skull. Dear woman, you are free. And in the words of John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of that guilty woman, of this guilty man, of all of us, who takes away the sins of the world. Friend, the application here, it's so rich. If we just take hold of this passage. See, I don't know what you're going through right now. I don't know what you're experiencing at this moment. I have no idea what addictions you may have. I have no idea what you did as a child, what you did as a teenager. I don't know what happened to you as a child, what happened to you as a teenager. I don't know what sin and shame you continue to allow Satan to throw back into your face day after day after day. But here's what I do know. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are free from condemnation. It's called grace. Jesus paid it all. Rest in his forgiveness. Rest in the ultimate price that was given so that you would not, not only face condemnation, but you would be relieved of that guilt, relieved of that shame that you have. Friends, if Jesus won't condemn you, why do you continue to condemn yourself? So right now, during our time of response, I want to encourage you to use this time to release that guilt, release that shame. Friend, has already been paid for by the blood of Jesus. So ask God to remove the shame just as he's already removed your guilt, just as he's already taken... Your punishment, so you don't have to experience what you're going through right now. I know that it can be uncomfortable, and sadly, for some reason, in a First Baptist church, there can be a stigma about coming to the altar and praying. I hate that. But, friends, let me encourage you. If you fell led during this time of of response, I want to invite you to come to the altar. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to kneel down, I want you to pray, and I want you to release that burden. Give it up. It's not yours to bear. Jesus has already borne it. Leave it here at the altar and then walk out in victory. The victory that's already been paid for the victory that's yours. And let's say, God, I'm not going to continue to struggle with that guilt. I'm not going to continue to struggle with that shame. Instead, I'm going to look forward because I know that you have given me a calling and it's much greater than my own life. And I want to make sure that I'm living my life for eternity. So I'm going to pray. And I want all of us, whether we come to the altar or we, we stay in our, our pews, as we sing this next song of Jesus paid it all, maybe with open hands, that you would say, God, I give it all to you. I release it. Help me to live in the victory that you purchased for me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example that you have given us in your word of this woman who was guilty, no excuses, guilty of sin. And yet her words... Your words to her were so freeing and we know they are freeing to us today if we would choose to accept them that I do not condemn you. Lord, we praise you for the fact that you sent your son Jesus who bore all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our guilt, not just a portion on the cross. And Lord, I pray right now that we would live in light of what has been paid for. Lord, I know that there are people in this room that for years haven't been able to let go of something in their past, something that's happened that they feel like they've got to earn your love. They've got to do something to earn your approval. I pray that right now through the power of the Holy Spirit that they would feel your love washing over them. I pray that they would experience freedom like they've never experienced it before. I pray that they would find a loving Savior who says, I've already paid for it. Allow me to comfort you. And your Holy Spirit would wrap them in your arms and that you would guide them and lead them to a life that is abundant life, a life filled with meaning and purpose, a life that is lived for the sake of the glory of God. And Lord, if there's someone here today that has never trusted you as Savior, Lord, I pray that today they would repent of their sins. They would confess their best deeds are filthy rags compared to you. They would invite you to come into their life to be their Lord and Savior, and they would find a Savior ready, willing, and longing to forgive them, to redeem them, and to welcome them home. Lord, in these next few moments, would you have your own way? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.